0: The last couple of weeks, pretty much what we've considered has been all introductory issues uh, related to the book of Revelation. We've talked about uh, issues of authorship, who it was that wrote the book, and I've told you that it was the Apostle John uh, who was the author of Revelation under the inspiration of God's Spirit. When was it written? Uh, Somewhere around 95 or 96 A.D., during the reign of a Roman emperor by the name of Domitian. And Domitian was really a bad guy who demanded worship for himself. And so the imperial cult of Rome became popular uh, throughout Domitian's tenure as emperor, and he pretty much uh, had a form of state religion that everyone was really required to uh, say Caesar is Lord the mission is Lord. And he adopted the title for himself, Lord in God. So the church was faced with the decision, am I going to bow the knee to Caesar or am I going to bow the knee only to Jesus Christ? And so persecution became a very real reality, uh, a very real issue with the church. And uh, the apostle John of course, he's the aged, aged apostle at this particular point. He's close to 90 years of age, and he's exiled to Patmos for the sake of his faith. And so why is the book of Revelation written? Why was it written? Uh, some would say that Revelation was written for the sole purpose of revealing the future or unveiling the future. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of of Jesus Christ, and while the future is very much indeed revealed, the primary purpose of the book is to enable Christians from every age and in every circumstance to view what's happening on the ground from God's point of view rather than man's. So by way of introduction tonight, keep that in mind. What's the purpose of Revelation? Is it just so I can come and You know, have my timeline in terms of dates and meaning of symbols and all this kind of stuff explained? No, ultimately the meaning of Revelation, the purpose of Revelation is to give the people of God hope and to show us how every circumstance that's happening in history show it to us from God's perspective. That's what Revelation does rather than man's perspective. And folks let me tell you that is, that is so important that you and I live with that kind of perspective. We can be comforted by that perspective. Because no matter how bleak and dark and hopeless the hour seems to be, we know that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that's what Revelation clearly shows. So Revelation then provides us with heavenly perspective. On earthly happenings. Heavenly perspective on earthly happenings, however terrible those happenings may be at any given moment. Now, I want to tell you, living with a heavenly perspective, that's a very important issue, especially for believers who are going through tough times. I mean, how is it that the church in Afghanistan? will be able to face such difficulty that they're facing at this hour of trial. It's only through a heavenly perspective. How is it that you or I can face the trials and the circumstances of our, our lives that try our faith and test our patience? How can we endure that except we have a heavenly perspective? And so questions like this always come up. Is God really in control or are things entirely in man's hands. When Jesus described the last days in Matthew 24, the images that he used in that chapter, they're ominous images to say the least. He said the last days, the times will be characterized by wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes in various places around the world. But even though that's ominous, does that imply that God is not sovereign over it all? Uh, One person looked at what the Bible says about pain and hardship in the world, and then he kind of went on to to express his thoughts about it all in a little poem that he wrote. Listen to this. God's plan made a hopeful beginning, but man spoiled his chances by sinning. We trust that the story will end in God's glory, but at the present, the other side's winning. At least at times, it seems to feel like that, doesn't it? We wonder, is the other side winning? Well, it may seem like that, but again, that's from an earthly perspective, not a heavenly perspective. So victory is already won. It's not that we're fighting for victory as the people of God. Revelation shows us that we are fighting from a position of victory that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has already secured through his death and resurrection. the time is coming when the kingdom is going to be consummated when Christ comes again. So we've looked at the first uh, eight verses or so of chapter 1. And now as we come to verse number 9, John is going to begin to explain a vision that he was given of Jesus Christ in all of his glory. And so again, you keep in mind the fact that even though it is a book that deals with the future... The main emphasis of the book of Revelation is on the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. Lordship. The unapologetic message of the gospel, the unapologetic message of Revelation is this message Jesus is Lord. And so this is a book that exalts Jesus like no other book. And there's no other passage in the entire New Testament that exalts Jesus any more than John's vision of the glorified Christ that's presented right here in these verses to which we now come. So let's read beginning with verse 9, and we'll read through the end of chapter 1. The Bible says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea, now again, these were those seven churches in Asia Minor. And if you look down on, where these were located on a map, the way that they're described in order, it's almost a circular uh, description of these churches. It's almost as if there were a circle being drawn uh, in Asia Minor. These were seven literal churches, but also seven a significant number in Revelation that speaks of completion or fullness So there is a sense in which this is a universal message to churches in every location, at every time in history, even though these are literal churches. Verse 12, John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and upon turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and these seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, I'm going to speak from this subject tonight, a vision of the glorified Christ because that's exactly what we're presented with here in this passage. This is a vision of the glorified and risen Christ. You know, I'm often intrigued at how people in our culture today want to make a Jesus that suits their own personal preferences. Uh, For example, some people want to embrace the peace-loving Jesus of Gandhi or the self-affirming Jesus of Oprah or this pluralistic Jesus of modern liberalism where Jesus is who you want him to be. No demands from this Jesus. None of that uh, reminds me of a T-shirt that I once saw. There was a tr- it was actually a trend, but this T-shirt had sort of a silhouette of Jesus on it and the tagline or the phrase on the T-shirt, Jesus is my homeboy. Now, let me just say, if you got that at home in your closet, no judgment, but go home and throw it away, Okay. Jesus is my homeboy. So so as long as he fits into our paradigm and suits our own preferences, Jesus is cool, at least from a cultural perspective. But the Apostle John is bringing us face-to-face with the real Jesus here in this passage. And John doesn't leave this experience with the T-shirt, Jesus is my homeboy. No, John sees Jesus in all of his glory, and all of his majesty. And, And what he records here is something that ought to be very comforting for the people of God. John sees the Lord Jesus in his awesome power. And all the details are recorded right here in these verses. The place where this vision happened, John's on Patmos. The person who's being revealed, this is Jesus himself. Again, keep in mind, Revelation, the book, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, who's the central figure. And then the purpose for which it's revealed. The Lord tells John that he wants him to write what he sees and then send it as a letter to the seven churches. So a few things here from the text. Uh, First of all, let's consider where John was. Verses 9, 10, and 11. Again, writing in the form of a letter, John is addressing those seven churches back up in verse 4. Now in verse 9, he's given us some information about his circumstances at the time of his writing. And according to what he says, John says that he was in a place of suffering. Where is John? Well, he's on Patmos. And notice how he refers both to himself as well as the believers to whom he's writing he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. He said, I was on this island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You know, what's interesting to me is that John could have made mention of his credentials as an apostle, but he doesn't do that. In his introduction, John could have made mention of the fact that, oh yeah, I was one who was in the inner circle with Jesus, Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he links arms with fellow believers and refers to them as as his brethren. He says, I'm your brother. That word brother that's used there, the Greek word literally means from the same womb. So he sees himself as a brother brother a fellow partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. And those terms that he uses there are very, very important. One person said it this way, in case his readers may be thinking of Christ's kingdom as a political kingdom in which we're to exercise earthly power, John is making clear that the kingdom about which he's writing in verse 9 is a kingdom that involves suffering. Yet it's the only true kingdom. The words tribulation, kingdom, patient endurance, in the Greek text these are introduced by a single definite article and it literally means that they're a part of the same reality. This all goes hand in hand. They go hand in hand with one another. Tribulation, citizenship in the kingdom of God and patient endurance. In other words, suffering for the sake of the kingdom goes along with citizenship in that kingdom. So the next time you encounter difficulty for the sake of your faith, remember, it just goes with the territory. After all, Jesus himself told his disciples that in this world, we can expect trouble. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. The apostle Paul said, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's not a matter of if... It's a matter of when. Living as a disciple of Jesus in a culture that is under the direction of the evil one means that we're going to be uncomfortable in that culture. And I think we're really beginning to experience some of this somewhat in a post-Christian context here in the United States. There's always been a price as far as the world is concerned with you being a citizen of the kingdom of God. To be under siege for your faith, this is something that's to be expected. And that's what John is telling his readers here. And yet, what he's going to go on to write in the book, it's going to open believers' eyes to this reality. But it's going to help them look beyond their present troubles and see the sovereign hand of God over history. Even when you suffer for your faith, when you have a glimpse of the glorified Christ and you understand that he's sovereign over the happenings of your life and sovereign over the happenings of this world, man, that just keeps you putting one foot in front of the other. So it's comforting and encouraging in that way. So John says his faith was ultimately the reason he was in a difficult place. Where is he? He's on Patmos. Patmos was a small rocky island that Rome used as a prison colony some 25 to 30 miles off the coast of Asia Minor. You think of it as a a form of Alcatraz. Andrew, recently he was fascinated with Alcatraz and we were reading all kinds of stuff about Alcatraz.
1: And uh, I
0: think it was a year ago we were in Pigeon Forge and I think they've gotten an Alcatraz experience and he just had to do that because he was fascinated by Alcatraz. Well, think of John in an ancient form of Alcatraz because that's pretty much what Patmos was for the Roman Empire. Uh, John had been banished there, he says, because of his faithfulness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus. So again, it's, it's God's word, the gospel, In his testimony, his witness as a believer, this is why he's been uh, exiled to Patmos. More than likely, Roman authorities viewed him as a political threat and they forced him into exile with this goal in mind of breaking up the churches that John led. You don't want to go after the church, go after the church's leadership. And so that's pretty much what Rome uh, did. Chuck Swindoll says this, he says, throughout the history of the church, Christianity has experienced various degrees of persecution. You think about in the years that immediately followed the the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, uh, the church experienced extreme opposition and persecution from both Jewish authorities in the synagogue as well as Gentile authorities throughout the empire. You had Nero in the late 60s who persecuted the church there in the city of Rome itself. It was under Nero's persecution that Peter was executed for his faith. The Apostle Paul was executed for his faith. A lot of other believers were persecuted for their faith. 30 years after that, there's persecution that arises under the emperor Domitian, and it's more of a widespread kind of thing. And, and again, evidently, Domitian set his sights on one of the last surviving apostles and that was John himself. There's a tradition that says that the Roman officials tried to go after John and they tried to boil him in a vat of oil, but he wouldn't boil. And so, you know, they exiled him to this rocky island instead. That's, that's a tradition, whether that's true or not, we don't know, it could just be urban legend or something like that. But we do know that he's exiled to Patmos under Domitian. In fact, you can go to Patmos today and there is a particular cave and, and there's a, um, a church that's built up around this particular cave and it's called the Cave of the Apocalypse. There's a picture of it there. And this is where local tradition says that John was when he was there on Patmos as he receives this very vision that is being given in this first chapter. So Patmos, Patmos was intended to be a place of suffering in which this elderly apostle is exiled for his faith. Later on, other Christians are going to be thrown to the lions in the Roman Colosseum, various arenas in different cities throughout the empire. And it's gonna be a terrible time. Things are gonna continue that way, the Roman Empire leading all the way up to, I think it was 351 if I'm not mistaken with the Edict of Milan where Constantine, Emperor Constantine uh, legalized Christianity in the empire. So this is a place of suffering. That's where John is when he receives this awesome vision in chapter one. But not only that, it's also a place of submission Look at what he says there in verse 10. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. In other words, John made Patmos a sanctuary. Isn't that good? What the enemy meant for his destruction, God meant for his construction. The first day of the week, this is a reference to the the Lord's day, the first day of the week, he says he was in the spirit. More than likely this is a reference to the fact that he was worshiping, he was praying, perhaps he was singing, he was engaged in devotion. The point is he was walking in step with the Holy Spirit in a place of surrender and submission. And No wonder then after having placed himself in such a posture of worship, John is given a word from the Lord. Which by the way, if you want to hear from God in your life, that kind of posture is essential for you too. We talk a lot about physical posture and how important it is for a person to stand up straight and have commanding physical posture, healthy physical posture. Well, you know your spiritual posture is also important, more important than your physical posture. A lot of people have great physical posture, but they have terrible spiritual posture because they're too proud to hear from God. By the way, it's a good idea for all of God's people to be in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Being prayed up, filled with the Holy Spirit, excited to be in worship, excited to be in fellowship with other believers. John didn't have that on Patmos. He's in exile. This is a lonely place, yet he's in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Another way of understanding this is that he is supernaturally given this vision in the Spirit, much in the same way that the Apostle Paul had been caught up into the third heaven where he heard things that were indescribable. So this is, this is the, the, a process of revelation. John's being given a revelation here for the benefit of the people of God, both in his day and for all times. So again, you think about your own life here. Let me just make a point of application. Is devotion time something on your calendar? Even when you're in a Patmos of all places, A place of suffering, a place of hardship, a place of pain, a place of hurt. You can turn Patmos into a sanctuary much in the same way that the Apostle John did. And it's often there on Patmos, you don't miss that appointment with the Lord. Pain has a way of calibrating us to what's most important unlike anything else in life. God's people, again, we saw, we've seen this in our study of Amos, God's people often have a harder time with prosperity than they do with pain. When we hurt, God sends, tends to have our attention. But oftentimes when we're proud and we're prosperous, we don't have time for God. But God does our, the best work in our lives during those seasons when we're in some Patmos. Well, that's where he, John was Notice the second thing, who John saw, because this is the main thing here. He's there, he's worshiping, he's in the spirit on the Lord's day when he suddenly hears a loud voice that can best be described as a trumpet blast. And John says there in verses 10, verse 11, verse 12, he to see uh, the, where the sound was coming from and he saw the most spectacular sight and, and his vision here is twofold he sees something and he sees someone the something he sees seven golden lampstands, which a little bit later on we're going to be told that these are symbolic of the seven churches but He sees someone, a powerful figure, who's standing in the midst of these lampstands. And so John then uses the best descriptive language that he could under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to describe what in many ways is just indescribable. And the Lord Jesus is described here in this passage in a way that not only conveys something about his physical appearance, but it also conveys something about his character, something about his attributes. And so what is it then that is being described? John sees someone who is undiminished in humanity, undiminished humanity. He says, I saw one like a son of man. The vision resembled someone in human form, but clearly this was more than a mere man. You keep in mind the fact that it had been a long time since John had seen Jesus. The last time that John saw Jesus was when Jesus had ascended uh, into heaven. John was a young man at that point in his life, uh, maybe 30, a little bit older than that. But now, some 60 years later, he's an old man who himself, his strength is diminishing. And yet... As for the Lord Jesus who now stands before him, the years had not diminished the Son of Man in the least. Now again, you're going to have to remember back to our study of Daniel because this is going to be really helpful when you think back to Daniel's vision in both Daniel chapter 7 of the Son of Man and the man in linen in the last three chapters of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 10, but in Daniel 7, Daniel had a vision in which the four winds of heaven were stirring up the sea. In fact, turn to Daniel 7. for Your Bible ought to just open there automatically as much time as we spent in Daniel. But go to Daniel 7. And you remember in that passage, Daniel was in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Daniel saw a dream and had visions of his own. He then wrote down the dream. But in the vision, Daniel said, I saw the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. He said, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, and these were different from one another. And again, all of these beasts were symbolic of world empires. The first beast was like a lion with eagle's wings. The second, verse 5, like a bear. The third, like a leopard. again, these were symbolic of empires, Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire after that, Alexander's Greek Empire after that. And then there was a fourth and terrifying beast that was totally unlike the others. And in this sense, it was Rome and a revived version of Rome that would be characteristic of the last empire in the last days. So these beasts emerge from the sea. The the winds of heaven are stirring up the sea. The idea is God is sovereign over the affairs of humanity. Empires rise, empires fall, and it never takes God by surprise. But so that's the scene from the sea. But then in that chapter, uh, the scene changes, and it moves to a throne room scene there in verse number 9. Daniel says, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment. The books were opened. Down in verse 13, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." So again, compare all of this to what John is describing there in Revelation chapter 1. And it's all revealing of the omnipotent character and sovereign rule of our God. And this son of man figure that Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 7, this is the same figure that John is now seeing here in Revelation chapter 1. And son of man has to do with undiminished humanity but beyond that it also has to do with unquestioned deity and obviously the way that John goes on to describe this son of man figure uh, again it's it's in terms of unquestioned deity this is not an angel this is not a mere man Daniel's description of the Son of Man in Daniel 7 was not an angel, not a mere man, but one like a Son of Man, said to be coming with the clouds of heaven. That's an indication of deity. In fact, John's already made that statement back in verse 7 when he said that Jesus is coming with the clouds and every eye will one day see him. Often throughout the scriptures, clouds were associated with God's presence so this son of man figure, this is none other than Jesus himself an undiminished humanity and unquestioned deity. And by the way, that phrase son of man was the Lord's favorite self-designation. And I made this point when we looked at Daniel 7, but the title Christ is used 49 times in the Gospels to refer to Jesus, 49 times. Only 11 of those times was it used by Jesus to refer to himself. The title Son of God is used 25 times in the Gospels. Only five of those times was it used by Jesus to refer to himself. Son of David, you find that title 14 times used by the Gospel writers. Only one time was it used by Jesus to refer to himself. And yet this title Son of Man... It's used 78 times in the Gospels to describe him and all 78 times it was used by Jesus to refer to himself. No one else referred to him as the Son of Man but he himself, which means that uh, that Jesus referenced Daniel 7 more than any other place in the Old Testament in reference to himself, which is why... The Jewish Sanhedrin recognized this claim. It's why they ultimately put him to death and sought to put him to death. Mark chapter 14, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. (laughs) And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. And it was at this, the Bible says, they stopped up their ears and they rushed at him. Blasphemy because it was a claim to deity. So don't think of the title son of God as being the only title that refers to deity. Son of man refers to humanity. No, in its true sense, this expression son of man, this is is pointing us to the glorified God man, the perfect man, Jesus Christ in humanity and deity. He was not 50% deity and 50% humanity. He's 100% deity, 100% humanity. You try to figure that one out, you try to explain that, it blow your mind. You explain it away, you may just in fact lose your soul. Because there's a lot of people who've tried to figure this one out down through the years and say, well, Jesus is not God. He was was just a perfect man, but he was not. No, Jesus Christ claimed to be God in the flesh, men and women. Daniel recognizes this son of man figure, uh, even though it's hundreds of years before the fact, and it's still uh, shadowy in his mind. But let me tell you something. John knows exactly who it is that he's looking at here in this passage and he sees him in undiminished humanity with unquestioned deity. This is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But then unrivaled majesty. You go back to chapter one there in Revelation and John says he sees this one like the son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now you compare that to the man in linen that Daniel saw back in chapter 10 of his book. And the significance of the clothing here, this is what the Old Testament priests wore. And so Jesus here is being presented as our perfect and faithful high priest. One who's majestic, one who's perfect in every way, one who offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin and has made atonement for our sin before God the Father. And what is he now doing? Well, the Bible says he's ministering in the heavenly temple on behalf of his people, making intercession for his people. You know, Jesus is interceding on your behalf right now at this very moment. Now, you think about that. The the very one who knows everything about you, who knows you better than you know yourself, he's interceding for you before the throne of God. Isn't that an awesome thought? So in the seasons of your life where you feel the most lonely and the most neglected and the most fearful, you want someone desperately to pray for you, know that the Son of God is always interceding on behalf of his own. We have an advocate before the throne of God. That means even when we sin, when we drop the ball, I'm glad I've got someone in heaven whose wounds plead for me, plead my case constantly. When the accuser comes along and accuses my conscience of things I've done, things I've said that I know that are under the blood, but I'm still tempted to be weighed down with a load of guilt and shame I'm encouraged by the fact that I've got one in heaven who's interceding for me, who's, who's an advocate pleading for me. So unrivaled majesty. Who else is it that John sees? Listen, here's one who is unblemished in purity. The hair of his head is white, white like wool. If you're white headed tonight, listen, be encouraged by the fact that that's a symbol of holiness. <laughs> It's a description of Jesus identifying with the ancient of days. Again, this is the same language that was used there in Daniel 7 to describe the ancient of days. How God is described. So again, this is an unmistakable claim to deity. Speaks of wisdom and purity and power. John also saw someone who is unhindered in terms of scrutiny. Verse 14 says that his eyes were like a flame of fire. That's judicial imagery there. These are eyes that see through and disclose everything. Fire is often associated with the manifest presence of God. You remember God appeared to Moses, Exodus chapter 3, in the burning bush. Deuteronomy chapter 4 says that the Lord your God is a consuming fire. So that he has eyes that are like a flame of fire, here's one who's looking into the situations of our lives with perfect knowledge. He's peering into the depths of my heart with perfect knowledge. He sees things as they truly are. There is no filter to apply that you can apply to try to prevent his eyes from seeing who you are. All things are naked and exposed to the eyes of this one to whom we all must give an account. Untarnished integrity. Verse 15, John says that his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Daniel 10.6 says the same thing about the man in linen. So it suggests a moral integrity and purity. Adrian Rogers said this, bronze is an emblem of judgment, feet are a symbol of progress. So Jesus is pictured here as being relentless as he goes forth in judgment and nothing can stop him. All judgment has been given to the son. Jesus himself said the father himself judges no one but all judgment has been given to the son. When the judge comes one day to settle all accounts, it's going to be Jesus. And in that way, here's one with unchallenged authority. Verses 15 and 16, John says, his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So he's got the stars in one hand. He's got a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. This speaks of authority. Later on, we're going to see how the stars... Of the churches, these these, these stars uh, are angels of the churches or messengers of the churches, those who are tasked with speaking God's word to the churches. What a reassuring word this is that they're held by Him, and His Word is their authority. Jesus is the word made flesh. Therefore, he is our ultimate authority. And then one last thing unlimited sovereignty. The last statement there in verse 16 says that his face was like the sun shining in full strength. You ever tried to look at the sun? Sometimes when I'm up here on this platform, I look at these lights. I feel like I'm kind of looking at the sun as bright as they are at times. Listen, don't try to look at the sun because you'll severely damage your eyes. Now, here's the thing I want to ask you. If the sun is so powerful, and it's a created object, if it's so powerful that just within a second or two, you can damage your retina, damage your eyesight, blind yourself, what do you think it's going to be like to look upon the one who created the sun? With just a mere word from his mouth. So, this is a picture of unlimited sovereignty. Jesus Christ has absolutely everything under his sovereign command. Hebrews 1.3 says that he upholds all things by his word of power. There is not one rogue molecule in the entire universe not under his sovereign command that he's not sovereign over. Abraham Kuyper said it this way, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Mine. That's true of my life. It's true of my resources. It's true of my family. It's true of my ambitions, my goals, my hopes, my dreams. It's true over the nations and the people of this world. It's true. It's Jesus as it belongs to him. And one of these days he's going to come and reclaim what's rightfully his. So you take all of this into consideration. What does it mean for you personally to know that the Lord Jesus, that John is given a miraculous glimpse of here in this passage, and he's described it for us, what does it do for you personally? I'll tell you what it ought to do. It means you ought to resign as the chairman of the board when it comes to running your own life. Run up the white flag of surrender and submit to this one who is perfect in every way and sovereign over everything. One last thing, let me finish with this. Notice what John hears. Look at his response there in verse number 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Every now and then someone will say something like this. Man, when I get to heaven... I'm going to ask the Lord a thing or two. Oh, really? Because every person who's ever had an encounter with deity and unrivaled majesty in Scripture, just the mere sight of it, boy, they fell flat on their face in worship, fear in the presence of such deity. Don't be so arrogant as to think you're going to ask God a question or two. Boy, Job had that kind of mentality, but then God started asking him questions he didn't have any answers for. What if God's got some questions for you? So that's how John is responding. And, and, and think about it. John had been an apostle. John had been in that inner circle. John was a theologian. John was the author of both the gospel that bears his name, three letters that bear his name, and now the book of Revelation. But in spite of all of that, he's reduced to a trembling sinner lying helplessly in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. No pride is found in his life. It's kinda like Isaiah. When Isaiah had that encounter with the Lord, he saw a vision of the Lord and his glory in his temple. Isaiah said, woe is me for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He said, for mine eyes have seen the majesty of the king himself. Nobody ever has an encounter with the living God in scripture and struts afterward. Jacob did limp after his encounter, but nobody struts. So here's the thing, you you see Jesus for who he is, then you're really able to see yourself for who you really are. And so for those who are conceited in their pride and in their arrogance, that tells me they've never really had an encounter with the glorified Christ, never had an encounter with the Lord that brought them to the point of humility, What about John's reassurance? Now think about this. This powerful son of man figure, robed in majesty, the very one who held the stars in his hand, he reached down and placed one of those hands on John's bowed head. (laughs) If I don't just bless you, just think about that. The one who holds the stars in his hand, with that hand, he reaches down and touches his humble servant. And John is reassured that there was no need for him to be afraid. Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. Again, this is a claim to deity. I'm the one who's alive. I died, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and hell. These are reassuring words. Ray Steadman says it this way. Uh, Jesus is essentially saying to John, I am your friend and not your enemy. I'm the first I'm the last I set the boundaries of time and history all people all events are closed within the limits that I have determined in my sovereignty I hold the keys of death and hell both physical death spiritual death I'm sovereign over all that is and you have nothing to fear my friend and that wasn't just true for him but man that's true for those of us who were in Christ nothing to fear and yet There's some responsibility that John is left with. He's he's told by the Lord to write. Write the things that you've seen. Look at verse 19. Write the things that you've seen, those which are and those which are to take place after this. Now, a lot of Bible scholars see this as a general outline for the whole book of Revelation. For example, the past, things which you've seen, this refers to the vision of Jesus that John receives here in this first chapter. The present, things which are, refers to the messages that the Lord gives the seven churches in chapters two and three. Real churches dealing with real issues in that particular time and context. But also the future, things which are to take place after this, that refers to the events that will take place at the end of history. And we draw near the return of Jesus. So so here's the thing folks in a very powerful way in this text let me tell you what the holy spirit does he calibrates our minds fixes our minds focuses our attention on the lord of the church who he is what he's doing in human history he's the central figure of human history And one person said it this way, our lives can never be lived realistically, triumphantly, and joyfully without reference to him. We as Christians are called to live as though we see him who is invisible. He's the one we take to work with us every day. He's the one who's going to be with us as we deal with issues. He's the one who's with us as we go to sleep. He's the one who's with us as we face our trials and as we experience our joys. He is the source of our courage, our peace, our wisdom, our forgiveness when we sin. He is our very present help in time of need. Aren't you grateful that John received this vision of the glorified Christ? You ever feel like you're in a Patmos situation in life, and you don't know what to, you don't know which end is up, you don't know where to look? Let me just encourage you: go to Revelation one and take a good long look at who it is that saved you, who sustains you, and who's interceding for you at every moment of your life. Let's stand for prayer tonight. Well, I need him, folks. Don't you need him? I need him. I think about just my own weakness, my own limitation. Oh, but how encouraged we can be by this vision of the glorified Christ! If you don't know him tonight, oh, listen! If you come in these doors, you didn't—you don't know if you're a Christian. I encourage you: turn from your sin, place your faith and trust in Jesus. But folks, the next picture that the world receives of Jesus is not going to be the bloody Jesus who's bleeding and dying on a cross. It's going to be the risen and glorified Jesus, the Son of Man in all of his majesty with fire in his eyes and a sword coming from his mouth as he comes to strike the nations in judgment. Lord, with all that's going on in our world, We need this vision. Lord, it's one that encourages us. It's one that focuses us. One that brings comfort to our soul. When it feels like the other side is winning, we know, Lord, that we're looking at life from our perspective, not from heaven's perspective because the battle has already been fought and won and Jesus Christ is the victorious soon coming king whether it be geopolitical conflicts that are raging around the world, the persecution of believers in places like Afghanistan, the suffering of people in Haiti, the unbelief of those that we love, that we witness to, Lord, your sovereign. Fire us up as your people, Lord, to be motivated to take the word of the gospel be willing to face our own Patmos for the sake of Christ and his glory. Lord, those who were discouraged tonight, Lord, those who've been dealing with issues that only you and they know about, Father, my prayer is that they would be encouraged by this vision of the glorified Christ who's their advocate and one who's interceding even now. So Lord, seal up these truths in our hearts. May we be obedient,